You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. So I'm excited this morning to jump into the Word with you. For the past few weeks, maybe 12 plus, somewhere in there, we've been in a sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, looking through that wisdom literature, and then last week, of course, celebrating Easter, and also looking at the uh, New Testament uh, testimonies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning, I wanted to turn to a bit of a different page and a different passage in the book of Jeremiah. To get us started in this idea, I wanted us to think about for a moment this procedure that we have called heart transplant surgery, human heart transplant surgery. It's a procedure that we have a little more than 2,000 of each year in the U.S., but that wasn't always the case. It's a fairly recent procedure. See, in 1967, there was a man named Louis Washkansky in South Africa. And he, had, uh, he was suffering from diabetes, and he had an incurable heart disease. He'd had three heart attacks already, and he wasn't going to live. In December of that year, of 67, Washkansky was in bad shape at a hospital in Cape Town, South, South Africa, when in the same hospital, a young woman was declared brain dead due to fatal head injuries. And Dr. Christiane Bernard took steps to arrange and perform the first human heart transplant surgery in the world. On December 3rd, 1967, Dr. Bernard surgically removed Mr. Washkansky's dying 54-year-old heart and stitched in its place a healthy 25-year-old heart. And the New York Times reports, the donor heart was sutured in place, the organ was warmed gently, And as it approached normal body temperature, it started to beat vigorously. Another source reported, Dr. Chris stood there for a few moments watching, then stood back and said, it works. As the recipient of the very first human heart transplant surgery, Washkansky didn't live for long after that. But he was revived and got to spend a little more time with his wife. You see, for a radical procedure like that place, for us to take a, a radical treatment option depends on us accepting a very difficult diagnosis. Dr. Bernard later wrote of the procedure, for a dying man, it's not a difficult decision because he knows he is at the end. This morning, I want us to consider the human condition and God's diagnosis of the human condition. And he gives that through his prophet, Jeremiah. And I believe that it's only when we face that diagnosis without deceit, without deception, without denial, then may we receive the prescription that God's word gives us. And this is a major point of inflection for how we live as well. Here's my main point for the morning. I don't know if I'll have to change batteries in just a moment. In fact, here's the main point, main 
um, summary statement for the next two mornings. So as we move through Jeremiah chapter 17 this morning and through another passage next Sunday, it's this, that God offers a new heart to those who are desperately sick. God offers a new heart for those who are desperately sick. Recently, I saw a film called um, Don't Look Up, which follows in the footsteps of uh, earth disaster movies, you know, catastrophic disaster movies, you know, like uh, a lot like uh, Bruce Willis's Armageddon back in the day or its twin better movie called Deep Impact that nobody else saw. But these meteorite movies where early in the movie, this uh, recent one called Don't Look Up, astronomers identify that there's a meteorite on path for collision with Earth. And unfortunately, this meteorite is so large that after impact, there will be no survivors. And so this film, this recent one, was compelling because, at least in the first half there or so, it focuses on the difficulty of communicating such an existential crisis to anyone. It focuses on the media systems and the governance issues and the difficulty of these people who have checked and rerun their calculations and peer-reviewed it and they've arrived but they can't seem to get anyone else to listen. They have this tragically bad news, but nobody wants to hear it. They're either laughed at or ignored. That's the situation that the prophet Jeremiah finds himself. 17. I'm going to adjust this thing and see if it ever... Stops messing up. But as we look at chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, we hear what I think is a good summary of some of Jeremiah's message. It's a good distillation of what he's saying as we jump in here, kind of mid-book. But he's speaking to a people of Israel who do not want to listen. And they either laugh it off or they ignore him. But history tells us that they do not heed his warning. And it's a dire warning, and it's difficult to hear. And as we preach it even today, I find we ourselves in the same situation as we relay Jeremiah's message again and again. Nobody really wants to hear. But I give you this morning what I believe is God's diagnosis of the human condition, that we may receive and follow into his prescription. But Jeremiah chapter 17, would you read with me verses 1 through 10? And he writes, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it's engraved on the tablet of their heart. And on the horns of their altars, while their children remember the altars and their ashram, Beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled. That shall burn forever. Verse 5. 
Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So these words, they are difficult. That's immediate. But why would they apply to us when he's very specifically a Hebrew prophet giving prophecy to a Jewish people, in fact, the people of Judah. We aren't necessarily, or there aren't many of us who would claim to be the people of Judah specifically. Most of us aren't Jews. Most of us don't set up Asherah poles in high places or in the green hillsides, I hope. Like is being talked about here, why would this passage apply to us? And we've got to be careful when we read these Old Testament passages that we don't automatically jump to, well, that's for me. Usually, you read a blessing, and we like to jump to that. This has more curse in it than it has blessing. But still, we need good reason to go from, here's something specific for the people of Israel, to here's some principles, though, that still apply to us. So, here are at least three good reasons why I believe the principles in this passage about the sin of Judah applies just as well to us today, to every one of us. The first reason this applies to us is because it's consistent with the rest of Scripture in that message, that the sin of Judah, that our sin is engraved with a pen of iron on the tablet of our heart, would be a consistent message when we look across the rest of Scripture. Romans 3.10, the Apostle Paul would write, There is no one righteous, no, not one. Or in 3... Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or back in the Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Or going all the way back to Genesis, in the first book, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or much later in the New Testament, looking in John chapter 8, verse 34, from the words of Christ himself, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Or in the end of the scripture in the book of Revelation written by John, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered and need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
There's a consistent message across Scripture in this diagnosis that the sin of humanity is written on their hearts, engraved as if on a tablet of stone. So it's consistent with the rest of Scripture. This also applies to us, I believe, because secondly, Jeremiah moves from the specifics about Judah, about the specifics about the ashram and the high places and the hills and the altars, and he moves to a more generalized language himself, speaking of cursed is the man in verse 5, or in verse 7, blessed is the man, meaning any man, or in verse 9, referring to the heart, telling us any heart, or actually every human heart, or in verse 10, to give every man accordingly to his deeds. And so the language of Jeremiah in his prophecy, in this passage that I would say kind of summarizes some of his message, he moves from the specifics of Judah into the generalization, the universal truths that apply to all humanity. So it applies to us today. And thirdly, this stands for us today in its principles. Because Judah, beyond all, should have been able to be faithful to the Lord. Their hearts and their lives should have been able to remain blessed if any of us could. I recently watched very little, I'll be honest, of the Olympics, but the Olympics came on, was broadcast on TV. And in the Olympic uh, Games, we send our best athletes, people who have trained their whole lives, who are even a a little bit just genetically fortunate for their particular sport, sport, you know? Um, You know, whatever body type that sport may require, those tend to rise to those Olympic levels. And so we send our best trained athletes. And uh, I think one of the events was like the figure skating, and people watch the figure skating, and they do incredible things on the ice that I could never dream of doing. But it would be like this. It would be like watching the figure skaters on the ice attempting some never-before-seen triple twist, double somersault, hemi, whatever. I don't know it. Um, and then failing and falling flat on the ice in front of everybody and me sitting at home in front of my TV on my sofa saying, oh, come on, send me in. I could have done that easy. I mean, look at me. I'm a figure skater by nature. You know, not at all, right? The people of Judah were Olympically trained and conditioned to be able to live the life that God designed for us to live. They, above all people, had been trained, had been given everything that it should have taken to be faithful to the Lord in their hearts and in their lives. They had God's personal intervention. He started this people from scratch, brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and started their culture from almost nothing in a wilderness. He gave them their laws He gave them their commands, their ways, their customs, their feasts, their holidays. He gave them their calendar, their prophets, their leaders, their governance. He gave them everything they needed, their prophets, their kings, everything to stay faithful to the Lord. And if they fail, who are we to watch from our sofas and say, well, I might could have done it. They above all people should have been able to stay faithful to the Lord. And so the diagnosis that sits on them in this passage, how much more does it apply to all of us? And if Judah could not be faithful to the Lord, how could we? 
and the diagnosis is ours. And so I think we have to ask, if this is the word of the Lord and we are to consider this, to evaluate what this means for us, we need to ask, how sick are we? And if we look at the verses here, starting back from verse 1, I think we see permanently and terminally. This is the diagnosis of the human condition. In verse 1, Jeremiah writes, written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, it's engraved, the sin is engraved on the tablet of their heart. This is to be uneditable. This is to be final. It's permanently set. It's not changing. It's not negotiable or arguable. It's in the deepest part of their identity, the tablets of their heart. There's no whiteout. There's no backspace. There's no redo, undo button on this. It's engraved with a pin of iron, with a tip of diamond, meaning it's unchangeable. It's unforgettable. It is undeniable. It is unalterable. And this imagery that Jeremiah uses, it's sensational to these people. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. What is the tablet engraving on a tablet? What did it mean to the people of Judah? It recalls the imagery of the old covenant of God, of the law he had given, engraved by Moses on the tablets. When we see a national symbol desecrated, it raises our heart rate. It raises the anger and the attention, often rightly so, but that's what he does here. He takes a national image at the core of who the people of Judah are, the commandments given by God, the law engraved by the leader Moses, and he turns it upside down and he desecrates it in front of them. Sin is engraved on the tablets of your heart with a pin of iron and a tip of diamond, unalterable. And he says this to Judah. He says it in a way that should land hard, that should be difficult to deal with. It is to show an utter defilement. Where there should be something absolutely sacred and holy, there is desecration and corruption. And the consequence then follows in verse 3 and 4. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah. Verse 3 and 4. On the mountains, oh, excuse me, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin. They would put their altars, their idols, they would put their idol worship on these high hills and open spaces these green areas that was part of the idolatry of that particular time. Throughout all your territory, you shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. My anger is a fire that burns forever. And so there is a heavy loss and a heavy separation. The consequence of sin here is death, and in this sense, the death of a people of a way of life, of a nation, of an inheritance, and of a promise. And this is the kind of warning that Jeremiah is giving that nobody wants to hear. You can understand nobody wanting to hear that. But he kind of gives a verdict and a sentencing here. 
It's a little less like a medical diagnosis and more like a judge's sentence. And I don't want to confuse us as I speak of it as a diagnosis, because in a diagnosis, often we receive news that we are just purely victims of. Often we can receive any kind of diagnosis at any time and have had nothing to do with the ailment or the illness that plagues us. But in our sin, it's not like that. We have everything to do with it. We have all the agency and capability of having chosen and being held responsible for that sin. Excuse me. Not used to talking um, this much. Could I get a cup of water from anyone who knows where to get a cup of water? Voice does not work that um, doesn't have that endurance. So after the Lord delivers his sentencing, the verdict and the sentence as the judge. Thank you so much. As he moves on in these verses, he makes it clear what his standard is, by what standard he evaluates. So if somebody gives you a difficult diagnosis, the next thing you're going to do is, well, show me the charts. Show me the tests that you did, the lab results. I want to see the stats. What does a normal heart look like? Okay, now what does mine look like? Oh, that's the chart? Yeah, I can see that. That's, we want to see the chart. So after giving us the diagnosis or the verdict, the Lord seems to show us what the standard is. If we need reminding what more, one more time in the next few verses, 5 through 8, what is the standard on what, he is, uh, what basis is he evaluating? Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. So this is the standard. This is the test by which this is evaluated. And in verse 7, kind of a parallel passage, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, whose strength is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. And so there's two conditions here. And throughout all of Scripture and through humanity, there are two ways to live and there are two uh, ways to think. Objects of our trust and our hope and affection is where this was really distinguished. There are those who trust in man and makes flesh his strength. And there are those who trust in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. He says there are two ways to live. You're either one or the other. And if you think you're making a third way, a third option, or completely disbelieving, or deciding on something completely else, you're not going to be confined to this binary, two-choice system, then your trust is in man and in the flesh. There are two ways that the word of the Lord sets forward for his creation, and he gets to design this, and he gets to decide, and he has made these two ways. Our trust can be in ourselves one way or another, in our flesh, in our technology, in our ingenuity, in our whatever, morality, or it can be that our trust is in the Lord. There are two ways. There's the same choice from the very beginning. It just always looks a little bit different with Adam and Eve putting their trust in the flesh and in man looked like eating the wrong fruit. It looks different in every generation. I don't know how it looks for you and your household. 
but we can begin to take inventory. Do I trust in the flesh? Do I trust in man? Or do I trust in the Lord? Those are our options. The word trust here means a sense of security, to put your ultimate confidence in something. What do you put your ultimate confidence in? It's about the direction of the heart, who you put your trust in. But again, how can we tell? If for our first people, it looked like eating the wrong fruit, well, I don't think it looks exactly like that today. But what does it look like? for you to put your trust in the Lord? Or what does it look like for you to really put your hope and your trust and your confidence in man and in the flesh? Do you see, we tread into murky water here. It's like we have this standard of evaluation. We have this test, this MRI test, and the doctor puts the chart on the wall, but everything's a blur. Every, the lines are all wacky, and we can't read it because the heart and where we put our trust is murky water. It's difficult to assess. Even the most introspective of us, we have to wonder what really motivates us. What kind of fears really move us? Or is it faith? Is it selfishness? Or is it the interest of others? It's difficult to weed through. Verses 5 through 8 show us that cursing and blessing are ultimately about the direction of the heart, of what or who we put our trust and confidence in. But as we struggle to know where our trust is, or maybe even we're blind to it, verse 9 adds, Jeremiah, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the murky water of our heart. It's incredibly difficult to read. We have secret motives that maybe we ourselves don't even understand. We have hidden fears, hidden insecurities. We keep secrets from ourselves so long, we don't even know that we're doing it anymore. The subconscious and the verse, the word of the Lord says that the heart is deceitful above all things. We even deceive ourselves. So if what matters most in life is the direction of our trust, the object of our heart's affection and confidence, but it's murky water, who can understand it? Then what are we to do? In verse 10, God seems to answer, who can understand it? Verse 10, I, the Lord. Who can understand the human heart? I, the Lord. God knows the direction of our heart's trust and confidence. He searches our hearts. He searches our thoughts. He searches through our subconscious, through our hidden fears, through our deepest motives, the way that you and I would search through a sock drawer. And he easily matches up the secret and hidden motives of our lives with the outward and visible actions, with ease and with clarity, as in the full light of day. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, is what he says. No corner is hidden from him. And how sick does he say that we are, the one who searches the human heart? He calls it, in verse 9, 
desperately sick. If you'll remember, the summary I gave was that God offers a new heart for the desperately sick. In Mark chapter 7, in the New Testament, not the Old Testament at all, very different context, the Lord himself, Jesus, Mark chapter 7, says this, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The Lord Jesus reiterating the diagnosis in his own time. This runs in sharp contrast to everything else we tend to hear. Our culture does not run with this message. This is not one of the headlines on any morning show. Our society tends to promote very much opposite idea. We live in a day and age when there is no higher moral calling than to look within, not for evil that must be cleansed or dealt with, but for our salvation. One of the, I would say, one of the most universally consented to truths in our culture would be be true to yourself. If you want the applause at a high school graduation or a college commencement or even business conferences, just round up the message in that now kind of universally applauded so-called truth. Be true to yourself. What it means is look within yourself. Find your deepest desires and urges way within yourself and find a way to align your outward actions to those deepest desires so that the way you live matches every deepest urge and feeling within yourself. Our culture now speaks this narrative in every facet. Every children's film, almost, almost, you see the characters posted on the front door here. Every one of them, the narrative goes like this. Your society or your family are repressing you, oppressing you with their expectations and restrictions, and you've got to look within yourself to find something bigger and let it out into the world, and the world has to conform to you. And this is what our children continually watch and sing. That salvation comes from within you, that you've got to find the best thing that there is in the world deep within yourself and let it out on the rest of the world. And the rest of reality and the world has to conform to you. That's the narrative of our time. You can't get on YouTube or onto any social media hardly without seeing this narrative as the underlying foundational philosophy of our times. And the Bible is running Jesus himself in straight contradiction to it. Sharp contrast, we find ourselves at odds with a message that nobody wants to hear, that nobody wants to believe, because we've done a 180 on it. Now we believe that salvation comes from within each of ourselves. We come along as believers saying, within yourself is a heart that is full of deceit, and you need a new heart. And where does a new heart come from? If everything inside of you is corrupt radically, 
then where does salvation come from? Not from within, but from without. Salvation is not about looking inside ourselves and finding a truer truth that we unleash onto the world, but admitting that deep within ourselves we are desperately sick and that we need a new heart. And here comes the gospel of Jesus Christ into history saying, I offer you a new heart. And he was crucified on a cross, his heart not sick at all, actually perfect, without illness, without sin. And he gave it up, and his flesh was torn, and his body was broken to offer you his healthy, sinless, perfect heart so that you may trade simply by where you put your trust or your confidence in, simply by responding to the invitation of the Holy Spirit on your heart, even this morning now, if you can feel him working in your heart, saying, give up your old heart. It is sin-riddled and diseased and dying anyway. And take the heart of Christ. Allow the Spirit of God to dwell in you and to save you and to make what he calls a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And be saved by the heart and the work, the gospel sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that his, his word might dwell in you, that your life would be one with his, and that you would not look inside an old and dead heart for a salvation that is not there. But look to God who has intervened and stepped into our history to give us the desperately sick a new heart. And may we live with this diagnosis in the way that we think and act, that we trust in the Lord but that the way that we approach the rest of our lives would reflect the diagnosis that the human heart is deceitful above all things, that the way that we would approach education and finance and health and nutrition and governance and policymaking and parenting and everything else would reflect this diagnosis that the human condition has a deep, unsolvable problem that we cannot save ourselves from. It changes. It's this founding principle for how we do everything. Understanding that our heart has a deep sin problem and that Christ has come, Christ has died, and Christ has risen to give us a new heart, to give us a new way, his way, and empower us by his spirit. But may we get into that some more next week. So this week, I focus on God's diagnosis of our human condition. Next week, we'll follow up with another passage in Jeremiah, looking more emphatically on how God offers a new heart to the desperately sick. I want to pray for us, and we'll move into our time at the table.